I should have learned that from the 8 a.m. worship service. Uh, I made a joke when I got up here during the 8 a.m. service because uh, they were, as you were, still standing. And I said, uh, I'm not sure why y'all are standing, but you can sit down. Um, Thank you all for uh, having me here today, uh, this morning, uh, to share in the preached word. Um, We had a really rich full time, uh, I did anyway, during our adult education class this morning, rich conversation, rich questions. And um, I am just blessed to be here um, to share in this preaching moment with you all. Um, As I like to do before I begin preaching, I would welcome all of you who are here to worship God with me. Uh, to pray with me just briefly. God of grace, God of mercy, God of justice, here we are, God, your people, called according to your purposes in this world full of pain and poverty and rejection and scorn. But you have promised us that there is good news. And so God, in this, the preaching moment, I would ask that you speak to your people in the way that only you can, that you would tuck me behind your cross so that the people of God can hear the good news of God and be encouraged in the work of God. And together, God's people said, Amen. This morning's gospel passage, read beautifully uh, from the past from the Gospel of Luke, is a play on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But here in Luke's gospel, Jesus is not preaching from a mountain. Instead, the opening verse of the gospel passage says that Jesus, quote, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great multitude of people, end quote. Here, Jesus is not high and lifted up. Rather, he stands on a level place with the people. And I like this about Luke's gospel. I like that when Jesus positions himself to teach, he does not look for ways to lift himself up. Instead, he finds a level place to stand among the people. Luke's recounting of Jesus coming down to be with the people is a symbol. It's a symbol that invites us to remember the incarnation. The incarnation, which is God's coming to be with us in human flesh. It's it's widely considered the central miracle of our faith. Yet the church has widely misunderstood what makes God's coming down to be with us, in fact, miraculous. The miracle is not merely that God came down to be with us. Instead, the miraculous power of the incarnation has to do with how God came down to be with us. In Christ, God comes down to save us all. But understanding the means and methods of God's coming to be with us is crucial. In Christ, God offers us salvation through coming down to be with the rejected, the marginalized, the oppressed. Jesus then not only becomes human, he becomes a particular type of human. He becomes hungry. 
He becomes homeless. Jesus becomes hated. And ultimately, Jesus is killed by the police of his day. Oh, and by the way, many in Jesus' time uh, said that he deserved it. As theologian James Cone helped us understand as he labored to awaken the American church from its white supremacist slumber. In Christ, God took on a social location that is the equivalent to that of being a poor black person in America. And it is from this socially and economically neglected corner of creation that God offers us salvation. It is as a rejected, marginalized, hated, and oppressed person that God offers us eternal life. Have we understood what that invitation requires of us? In verse 18, scripture teaches that the people had come to see Jesus for two possibly interrelated reasons. They wanted to hear him, and they wanted to be healed by him. To be sure, some had come to be inspired and healed. These persons needed an inspiring and encouraging word, and they needed relief from hunger, poverty, or disease. But there are also persons present who did not straddle and who do not straddle this line of wisdom and works of wonder. Some have only come because they want to hear what they have already heard so much about. They want to hear the teaching of this rabbi who claims to be the one Israel has been waiting for. These folk are engaged in what we in the black community colloquially refer to as ear hustling. That is, they are eavesdropping to discover whether or not Jesus deserves more of their time and attention. Still, others in the crowd with Jesus have brought concerns that are not primarily about the religious and political shape of Israel, but are more immediately existential. These have come because they are hungry, and they have heard that Jesus provides food to people like them. They have come because they're sick. They cannot afford medical care. And they have heard that Jesus has the power to heal them. They have come because they are poor. And they have heard that Jesus has the ability to keep poverty from defining their lives. Many have gathered for various reasons and all of them press in on Jesus to experience his power. Yet in the midst of this large crowd, Jesus turns his eyes to his followers. The disciples have a different perspective. They have been with Jesus. They have heard him teach. And they have witnessed God's power at work in him. They have not shown up to be healed by Christ's presence. They are here because they have committed themselves in all of their imperfection to following Jesus. And so the followers of Jesus find themselves standing here, watching Jesus teach and heal as he stands, and this is important, on par with those who have come. 
Jesus realizes that this crowded moment, as he's surrounded by all of these folks pressing in for power, for wisdom, for understanding, this crowded moment is a teachable one for his disciples. Perhaps Jesus knows that some of the disciples yearn for the crowd's admiration and for the power that draws it. Perhaps Jesus can sense that this crowded moment tempts his disciples toward misunderstanding God's power. Maybe Jesus can tell that his companions see the needy crowd as an opportunity to exalt themselves. Whatever the prompt, Jesus fixes his eyes on his disciples. Scripture says he looked up at his disciples, which may mean that the disciples stayed up the hill a little bit, choosing not to join Jesus on the same level as the needy who had met him. Surely we are above them, they might have thought. But in the midst of this crowd, As the needy surround and press in on him, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. The multitudes may have overheard the words that followed, but Jesus is looking at his disciples, those who follow him. That is to say, he's looking at us. When he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. And there's more to this. With his attention fixed on his disciples, that is, with his mind's eye focused on us, Jesus adds a symmetrical set of woes to the blessings he has pronounced. And he says, but woe to you who are rich. Jesus says this, not me. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you, you will be hungry Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when, you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. These blessings and woes are spoken because Jesus wants his disciples, he wants us to know that this coming down to be with us is not just a religious symbol meant to inspire us as we live according to the same values we had before we became followers. We are supposed to be different. The world may blame the poor, the hungry, the uneducated, the sad, and the hated for their own lot. The world may lock those persons away in prisons and asylums, labeling them lazy, evil, illegal, and a drain on society. But Jesus calls them blessed. Those who are rejected, locked up, and locked out of the mainstream dominant society are reminded by Jesus that they are being treated as God's people are always treated. And that heaven has been set aside for them. The woes of Jesus are set aside for those who rule this world. The rich, the full-bellied, 
Those whose days are filled with laughter in a world full of pain and suffering caused by inequitable social and economic structures. We are reminded that we live in a world that heaps praise on false prophets, even as those sent by God to save us are castigated, dehumanized, and blamed for inconveniencing the comfortable. Imagine living in a city. Imagine St. Louis. If we measured the quality of our leadership, not by educational achievements, financial prowess, or military might, but by a willingness to come down, to really come down and be with the people. I don't mean coming out to take pictures with the people during campaign season. We are well practiced in that. I mean being with the people, living with them, sharing their struggles, their dreams, their pain, their anxiety, and yes, even their death. This is part of what Martin Luther King Jr. left us in the way of an American legacy. One of the greatest human beings this country ever created, Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis, Tennessee, marching, after all, with sanitation workers when he was killed. Jesus, after all, is standing with those the world rejects. When the powers that be decide that it is time for him to bear that cross. But what would it mean to actually value leadership in a city so violently and historically segregated? What would it mean to value leadership that actually came down to be with the people to work towards actually creating a more just and whole St. Louis? For many, this approach to leadership is considered politically naive. They would say that the vision we are meditating on right now is unrealistic. And that may be so. But this morning's gospel passage is a reminder that political strength is a woeful thing to pursue in a world where God, the God who comes to us in Jesus, has chosen to be with the oppressed. Church, may we be encouraged in the work that we are called to do, not in the places of comfort, but in the places that invite us to share in the sacrificial work of Christ. Thank you. Amen.